Well, truth be told, when I was a kid, I hated church. My parents dragged me to a small country church uh, for about three hours on a Sunday morning. We had to sit through a service and then sit through Sunday school and have a lot of chatter in between. And I just did not like it. I kept thinking, I can't believe that I have to come here. And, but at the same time, by the time I was about five, I wanted to be in ministry. And people would go, well, why would you wanna be a pastor at a church when you could not stand it? So as a five-year-old, here's what my thinking was, I believe, is that I thought if I wanted to go to heaven, which the alternative of hell didn't seem that exciting, if I wanted to go to heaven, I was gonna to have to spend the rest of my life going to church. And if I had to spend the rest of my life going to church, I might as well be running the show. So I gave my life to kind of running the show, but all that changed a few years later when I met Jesus and had a very personal encounter and relationship with him. And all of a sudden I understood what the body of Christ was. And then as a teenager, I saw the impact that a local church could have on a community because Jesus came and visited our church in a very powerful way. And all of a sudden people who would never darken the doors of a church came. All of a sudden couples who were headed for divorce court, God healed their marriage. Parents who had wayward children, all of a sudden those prodigals began to come home. We saw the community come together and we saw miracles happen and lives changed and people healed and God was at work in this community that was disparate people all of a sudden began to love and care for each other. And just like in the church of Acts, that people were in awe of what God could do. And so many times I think in our culture today, we think as Christians, the church is a place that we come and we hide and we kind of put a fortress around us against the world and we can live the way that we want. But what we want to look at today is that God meant the church to be his presence, his hands and feet in a city and in a community. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, he says this, a church which does not exist to do good in the slums and dens of the kennels of the city is a church that has no reason to justify its longer existing. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, fight with evil, destroy error, to put down falsehood. A church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. And friends, the people in the 416, in the 905 need Jesus. People in the six, in the nine, they need Jesus. And so for these few months, we're in this series we call We the Church, that the church is just not something we attend. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could just visit a church. He came so that we could be the church. And we saw that the church is to be a worshiping community. We saw a couple of weeks ago, it's a gospel form community. It's where we proclaim the gospel and baptism and communion and the gospel of Jesus, salvation of Jesus forms us. We saw your share with us last week about how the church is a community together. And so today what I want to talk about is that we're just not a fortress huddled down, hunkered down to protect ourselves from the, the evil ways, but that we are to be a transforming presence. And when we look at the New Testament, we see that the church changed and transformed communities. We see that a church 
with a God-given hunger and passion that's living a gospel-formed existence will transform the community that is around them. So I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 19. And today we wanna look at that first, like a church that has a God-formed hunger, a desire for God, a God-given burden, so to speak. And last week, Pastor Sawyer talked about the church in Ephesus and how they came together, had community. I wanna look at Acts 19, how the church started. And it's a phenomenal story of what God did in one of the largest cities of the world. We read this beginning at verse eight, that Paul entered the synagogue, he has come to Ephesus and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing pervasively, persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that attached him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and able, evil spirits left them. So here is Paul, he goes to Ephesus. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the world at the time of Paul. It was a major uh, influencer in culture and in business uh, next to Rome, probably second only to Rome, hundreds of thousands of people who were living there. It was a port city, so very important for trade and business. It was kind of the Bay Street and the Wall Street and the Champs-Élysées, uh, all kind of put together. It was a very powerhouse of business. It had a huge library that was there. It was a center of a lot of thought and education. And it was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Artemis, or the goddess Diana. Now, Diana was kind of a goddess of fertility, goddess of young women. Uh, she was portrayed as kind of an, an odd multi-breasted um, uh, figure, that she was worshiped through <coughs> temple prostitutes, uh, that she was worshiped through pornographic idols. There was a whole trade we'll see in the city based around kind of little amulets and idols that were very kind of graphic and pornographic. Uh, people would get off the ships from the harbor in Ephesus and they would go and they would find the temple prostitutes. In fact, it was very obvious in the city. If you go to the ancient ruins today, you can see in the sidewalk, it's like this way to all the prostitutes and kind of all the sexual deviance that was in the city. And so Paul goes there. He goes to one of the biggest cultural forces in the world at the time. And he does, what he typically did is that he would start whenever he went to a new place by meeting with people in the synagogue. And he would do that for a particular reason that they were God fearers, that's how he would describe them, in the sense that they were not pagans, they did not believe in multitude of gods, but, but in the synagogue, the Jewish people, they believed that there was one God and he wanted people to know that one God and made himself known through Jesus and given us his son and salvation. And so Paul goes to the synagogue and something unusual for Paul at least happens, the people don't welcome him. 
he goes there and he teaches, he's breaking the forces of evil in Ephesus by really speaking the truth and telling the truth about who God is and how he made us and formed us and loved us and gave his son for us. And people are in opposition. Some were hard-hearted, some were stubborn, some didn't want to believe. And in fact, in a more unusual way, they started to kind of come against Paul and malign Paul and make it difficult for Paul. And so Paul decides that after three months, it's time to kind of leave that base of the synagogue or that Jewish kind of quarter of the city. And he goes right downtown. He goes into the heart of Ephesus. He goes to the hall of Tyrannus. He goes into the center of the marketplace and he kind of sets up shop there. And he does so not by himself. Notice he moves the church there. It says he and his disciples and those who have experienced their life change, those who are now following Jesus, they kind of move the church where? Into the very heart of the city. There is huge marketplace, Agora in Ephesus, all of Tyrannus, lots of teaching, philosophy, number of different things. There was lots of pagan influences. The library had all sorts of books on witchcraft and the occult. And Paul goes right to the heart there. And as he's in the heart of the city, we're going to see that things happen. Now, why? Why would Paul do that? Why would he not just leave? In fact, Jesus, when he sent his disciples out two by two, he said, if people disregard you, don't listen to you, what do you do? You leave, you shake the dust off, you leave, and you go to the next town. Why would Paul stay? My guess is that his heart had broke for the city. Like people before him, he saw the needs of the city and his heart broke for them. And so he goes into the city. He does what Jesus, I think, had done uh, a few decades earlier when we see that Jesus, shortly before he died, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem and he begins to weep for it. In Luke 19, 41, it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known this day, the things that make for peace. He wept over the brokenness of the city and that they were so close to knowing who Jesus was, but his heart broke for the city. Just like Nehemiah, 400 years, 500 years before Jesus, his heart broke for the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, who is living in Persia, hears uh, a report about how broken down the city of Jerusalem is, how impoverished it is, though it's not safe. Uh, uh, other people are moving in and out. And it says in Nehemiah 1.4, when I, Nehemiah, heard these things, I sat down and wept for days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. That here is Nehemiah, his heart breaks for the city because there's something about living in the city. God made the cities for us. And we see that the prophet Jeremiah, when people were going into exile, when Daniel and others were going into Babylon, that, that Jeremiah said this, he said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find welfare. If it prospers, you will prosper, some say. That, that Jeremiah says, you go and you be a blessing to the city. And if you bless the city, it will prosper. And that's only good for you. It's the representation of Solomon's heart a thousand years before Jesus, who said, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. And I can't help but imagine that here is Paul. He's in Ephesus. He sees like all the greed, all the commerce, all the banking. He sees 
all the, the immorality and everything, the broken down families and his heart breaks and he's like, I can't take it anymore. I need to do something. I need to make a difference in this city. And I, when I grew up, there was this cartoon that was like Popeye the sailor man and his girlfriend Olive Oil was sometimes beaten up by Brutus or Popeye would see other injustices. And he would have this saying almost every cartoon. He says, I, I've taken all I can. I've had all I had and I can't take no more. And, and he starts to do something. And I get the sense that this was Paul. He says, I've, I've done all I had. I've had all I have. I can't take it. I have to do something that a church that has a God-given passion, a heart broken, what's God breaking your heart for? And we live in an incredible city, right? We live in a world-class city. One truly is one of the best places on the planet to live. But are there things that God is burdening your heart for? Like in our city, six million people, in the city of Toronto, there's 10,000 homeless people. Does that burden your heart? Like a city within a city is homeless, 10,000 people. The statistics say that almost a million people in the GTA are experiencing food insecurity. Over 900,000 people, almost a million people experience not sure how they're gonna get all their food, having to make difficult financial decisions. Are they gonna eat? or not, almost a million people in our city. I mean, I moved here from the US. People look at the US and the guns and the violence and they wonder what's up with that. And it seems like almost every week, if not more than once a week, there's another story of a, uh, of a police shooting, of a shooting of a police officer, of a, a, a knife in a school, of a school lockdown, of, uh, of teachers who are experiencing violence. Like our city, it, its violence is beginning to increase. Does that bother you? that more and more people in our country, they're, they're being given the choice of, of ending their life uh, with you know, medically assisted suicide. It's like, well, it's too hard to live, it's too costly to live, it's too difficult to live, uh, too disabled to live. And they're given that option. Does that bother you that life is not valued anymore? Does it bother you that in the next six or seven years, almost 9,000 churches are gonna close 9,000 churches across our country are going to close. Does it bother you about the increase in drugs, the increase in, in alcoholism, the, the increase in marital breakdown? Do those things bother you? Because sometimes what happens is we begin to think those are normal. We just look and we think, oh, that's just the way it is. That's the way society is. It's just normal. But God gave the church in Ephesus a burden. God gave Paul and his disciples a burden. We're not going to shake the dust off and leave. We're not going to hide out in, in kind of the religious area. We're going to go and we're going to be Jesus into the city. And there's something about that passion. You see, what happens is people say, oh, I, I wanna be like God. I wanna know God. I wanna be like Jesus. I wanna uh, live like Jesus. What would Jesus do? But do you really want the tears of Jesus? Do you want the tears of Jesus that breaks for the brokenness? Do you want the heart of Jesus for the lost? Do you want kind of the burden of Jesus where he sees the pain and he says, we have to do something. See, we want Jesus to give us something and when Jesus makes our life good and, and better, that's okay. And we wonder, why don't we see God? Why don't we see the miracles? It's because we don't ask for the heart, for the eyes, for the tears, for the burdens of Jesus. And a church filled with his burden is gonna see 
the community changed. And so it's because of that, we have people even in our midst, right, who are doing something. We have Young Doe, and Young Doe is one of the kind of local missionaries that we help support, and he's going uh, to reach uh, the hip hop community. He's doing street dancing. We've got people kind of here Monday nights. It's a group of people I could never reach, probably would never go to church. He started a service for them because he's saying those people need Jesus and going there. We have people who work with safe families and, and we have some families and, and they do that. They bring uh, children in who just need a little bit of short-term foster care while families get on the street and, and, and are able to just demonstrate to them uh, the love of Christ. Uh, we have uh, Monica who works uh, with uh, an organization of freedom uh, for sex trafficking and who helps educate people and understand where people in our city are being trafficked and said, I can't take that anymore. I need to do something about it. We have Archie and Cindy Kenyon who are working downtown, working with students, trying to reach a community and say, those students, they need to hear about Jesus. What burdens your heart? And one of the things that we have here at Bayview is that we have people who make meals for mind. And I'm gonna just invite Gord in a short moment just to share with him and talk with him about what making meals for the people at mind really means. So mind is an organization started by Dr. Pritchard and her husband, Doug, and they provide services to four buildings in Scarborough in, with the Toronto, Toronto Community Housing Commission. Residents in mind, they vary. They, you have people that have lived there for 25 years, and you have people that have been put there that have mental, uh, mental health issues, drug addictions, alcohol, just down on their luck. You know, it might be the only meal that they have of substance. You know, they go to the food bank, and get some stuff, but basically it might be the best meal they have every week. Now we're fortunate enough now that we got have that Bayview Glen is donating more food because we have getting it from two sources and Mustafa is able to serve more food that is very good. But in the beginning, the Sunday meal would probably be their best meal of the week. Well, basically I love to cook and I find it very relaxing. So it just seemed like a natural fit. And once I got more involved into it, it just see, I could see it growing more and more and doing more and more things with my ultimate goal being serving a thousand meals in, in the gym in three settings for Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. It takes about two hours, you know, what, all the way from going to the grocery store to get the food, to preparing it, cooking it, and putting it in the, in the tinfoil boxes that the church provides. It takes about two hours, and usually my wife Barbara and I do it together, and it seems like fun. No, they're very simple. You know, it could be chicken a la king. It could be barbecue chicken over a bed of rice with a, uh, a vegetable. There's so many, you know, jerk chicken. Uh, sometimes people you like the, uh, the chicken patty. It, it, it's just all chicken. And you just add proteins and starches and a vegetable. They need to go to the website and register in which they'll get vetted by the church. And then their email will come to my wife, Barbara, and she will put them in a group that cooks and then spread it out. And our goal is by the end of this year to be doing Saturday as well. 
it's just one thing that we can do. And, it, you know, I know also some people that cook meals, they eat the same meal that night. So it's not like you're just giving them, you know, something. It's food that you would eat yourself as well. Well, I hope that that little inspiration from Gord encourages you and, and encourage you maybe to think about making some meals here. We also have opportunities on the fifth weekend of the month to send some sandwiches and food and meals down to the Toronto Alliance Church. And uh, we do that to support them on the times when there's a fifth Sunday. And if you wanna do that, you can check out our website. But what is God burdening you? I just wanna ask you, what's that burden? Has God put a burden? Maybe there's something God's stirring in your heart and, and it's there for a reason. Maybe God is saying, here's how you, as part of the church, can make a difference. And maybe your burden is gonna be different than somebody else's, but what is God saying for you? A church with a God-given burden that secondly lives a gospel lifestyle makes a transformation. And this is what we see happening next. As Paul moves in, he goes into the hall of Tyrannus, he's sharing with people in the marketplace and people are living differently. They're living this gospel focused life. This is what we read beginning at verse uh, 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, I think every miracle is extraordinary, but there were some unusual things happening so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. And they would say in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered and says, well, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but I don't know you. And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, it came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. So notice what happens. Paul has a burden for the city. He goes down and what's it focused on? It's focused on prayer. He's praying for people. He's teaching and he's praying. You see, sometimes what happens is people see the needs and they get overwhelmed by the needs and they just get cranky and they start to complain. And you know people, they're always, they're always complaining about the way things are and it should be better, but they're not doing anything. And, and, and Jesus, he prays over the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, when he heard about the burden, he prayed. Uh, for the city. And so here's Paul, he's praying for people, healing and releasing. Are you praying? What burdens of the city are you praying for? A number of years ago, there was um, a massage parlor that did more than massage on the way from my home to the church that I was ministering at. And I remember my girls were gonna have to drive by there and, and see that. And I thought, I'm gonna do drive-by prayers. So every time I drove by, I just prayed that God would close it down. I prayed God would give freedom uh, to the women. I prayed that they wouldn't be exploited, that they find a job. I prayed that families wouldn't be broken anymore, that people wouldn't sneak off. I, I prayed for the, uh, the healing of, of just marriages and the home. And it took a long time, that was stubborn, but that, place finally closed down. And so sometimes with a burden like the power of prayer and Paul is praying, 
He's sharing Jesus. He's teaching Jesus. He's pointing people to the wonder of Jesus. And he's praying for them. And people are being healed. Their lives are changed. And so all of a sudden, people who have been involved in the occult, because there's a lot of witchcraft in the occult in the area, that, that they were freed. These demonic spirits freed them. And people, it says even the Jewish people are like, oh, now we see what Paul's doing. Now we kind of like, they tried to pretend and, and do it in Jesus' power, but they couldn't because it's not counterfeit. They didn't really do it in Jesus' name. They just kind of did it to try to prove that they could do something. And the demons were like, well, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but we don't know who you are. You don't really know Jesus. And then notice what it says. People began to live a gospel-centered life. They began to live a life that was changed. See, sometimes what happens is people say, oh, I just want to add Jesus to my life. I just like, oh, Jesus is a good thing. It's like another good magic <coughs> charm to my life, and I want to add him. And they don't take things away. But the people say, hey, in order to have Jesus, to live the fullness and the truth of the gospel, I've got to give up something. So they were bringing their books with witchcraft and incantations and spells and sorceries, and they were bringing them and they were burning them. Now, we live in a world where like, we, we all have so many books and books are relatively inexpensive and you can't even hardly give away books. This was not the case. I mean, a book was a rarity. And these people, obviously, they had money, they had wealth, and they brought those books and they burned them. It says they were worth 50,000 drachmas. That's like eight to $10 million today. This was not just a little thing. Their whole lives, all of a sudden, many people in the area were changed and they were living differently. And what we're gonna see is that the city begins to be changed when we proclaim the truth, but we live a gospel-focused life. We have to live like Christ. And it's out of the different living. These people saying, yeah, no, we're not going to cast these spells. We're not going to follow witchcraft. <clears throat> we're not going to let the demons work through us. We're going to live differently that the city was changed. And that's what we see happen. I remember a guy named Brian, <coughs> so angry. He just had anger in him. And he came to know Jesus. I remember sharing Jesus with him one time in my office. I thought he was going to hit me because I talked about the importance of forgiveness. And he got up and he kind of looked at me. But God got a hold of his life and he changed. And all of a sudden, he lived not an angry life, but a peaceful life. And people from his work kept coming to church like, hey, we want to find out about this Jesus. I think about a, a couple who uh, in the church had such a burden for single parents and just some of the challenges. And he was a mechanic. So he said, you know what? This is what I, I stands all I can. I can't stand some more. So I'm going to start some oil change. I'm going to change oil for single moms. And then he got some other businesses and some other garages and some um, other mechanics involved. And all of a sudden the church was praying. Uh, changing the oil for hundreds of single moms and the church became known as just this place that love, like we want to go because we know that they love Jesus. That see schools that are changed because moms and, and dads would go, they provide snacks for the teachers. They'd love on the teachers. They'd send them gifts. They'd have, give them food on parent teacher day. They'd say, hey, no strings attached. We just want to know that we love you and value you. instead of sniping at teachers or complaining about everything. Like we're here to serve you. And all of a sudden teachers were coming to school because they're like, we want to find out about this Jesus. See, what changes people is a gospel life. 
It's a (coughs) life that's formed by the gospel. And when you read the book of Ephesians, kind of Paul's letter, you understand things that Paul must have taught. He said, you're loved by God, you're adopted. So when people start living, it's like, hey, I'm fully loved. I'm known by God, I'm loved by him. Where he talks about the peace of Christ, that they're living the peace of Christ. So don't let the sun go down in your anger or let the devil get a foothold. Or people are saying, I'm gonna deal with my anger in a healthy way. People start living the gospel. People want that. See, what happens is sometimes we as Christians, we have Jesus, but we still live the same life. And we try to be as much like the world. This is what I've noticed. Try to be as much like the world as we can with a little bit of Jesus and wonder why we're not making an influence. It's because we're called to live completely different, counterculturally. And it's that countercultural life that's now so appealing to people. What is it to have a Sabbath rest and be at rest? What is it to really live out of the joy of the Lord? What is it to walk in the confidence of who we have as Christ? What is it to, to, to be husband and wife together with a cord of three strands, Jesus binding us when we live that way? And friends, sociologists get to say we only need 2% of the population to make a difference that 2% of the population living a certain way can make an incredible difference. 120,000 people living a gospel lifestyle in Toronto, it will have ripple effects. Because that's what we see. A church with a God-given burden, living this gospel-formed life, suddenly changes the whole community. And what happens now is that Ephesus is completely changed and people are up in arms and some of them don't know what to do because their old ways of life are changing. And what was happening is that there were uh, guilds of tradesmen and craftspeople. In particular, there was the silversmith guild. These were people who made particularly these pornographic idols and amulets and things of worship to Diana all of a sudden we're realizing the city was changing. People aren't buying that stuff anymore. And notice what happens in verse uh, 25. It says, he called, Demetrius, who is one of these silversmiths, gets people together and says, we gotta deal with Paul. We gotta get him out of our city. So he called them together along with the workers and related trades and says, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Like this is how we make our money, selling these idols. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is no danger, uh, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of divine majesty. So here's Demetrius, other people, they get up and they're like, our life is changing because Paul has hit them in the pocketbook. Because people's lives, they're realizing there is one true God. We don't have to worship an idol. We don't need a little amulet. We don't need these silver things. We don't need to spend and waste uh, our money. And, And Demetrius is upset, like their business is gone. The city is undergoing a transformation. This would be like no one is buying drugs, so all the drug dealers have to leave. This would be like no one um, is, uh, you you know, um, 
having to be told that assisted suicide, no one is, everybody is healthy or doing well or is committed to life. And I would be told that may, there's no one telling them uh, about that anymore. This would be like, oh, we don't have to hire uh, more and more police officers because there's no crime in our city that people are living godly lives. That's being changed. In fact, in the revival in, in Wales in the 1920s and 30s, like the prisons were closed. There was no prisoners. No, there was no need for the jailers because no one was doing anything against the law. The whole city was changing. And, and notice Demetrius, he says some things that are so untrue. He, he, he says, first of all, uh, you know, that this is going to like uh, really defame Artemis. Like th this is going to be a real challenge and nobody's going to want to listen and honor Artemis. And it's like, wait a minute, if Artemis is Artemis, if Artemis is a god, if she is a real god, she can, uh, she must have power herself to be able, right, to garner her name, but it's just revealing the powerlessness of the gods. And he also says he's worried, right, that Paul is defaming the names uh, of the gods and that, that Paul is doing harm. And what's interesting is that they finally gather Paul together and they charge him, like I said, we gotta get you. They try to really throw him out of the city. Eventually he leaves because it's just too hard. But that's one thing they're saying. They're saying, you are blaspheming our gods and you are saying terrible things uh, about our gods. But in Acts 19, verse 37, it says, you've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. That Paul and some of the other disciples are there, the church that is there, they've accused Paul of blaspheming. And then they said, but no, wait a minute, Paul never did that. He never blasphemed the gods. Now, this is really fascinating because it tells us how Paul changed the city. Paul did not stand up and say all the things that he was against. He didn't stand up and say, this is bad. He only stood up and he said, I wanna tell you about the beauty of Jesus, who Jesus is. He didn't say, hey, how bad Artemis was. He said, I wanna know how beautiful Jesus is. And when you point to the truth and the one who is the true God, that's what reveals how faulty the counterfeits are. And so sometimes we get so cranky and we talk about all the things that we're against instead of saying, hey, here's who Jesus is. We want you to know about Jesus. We want you to know his truth, his life, the peace that Jesus offers, the love that we receive, that the power we have, that he's the one who uh, satisfies our soul, that those of challenge and, and kind of struggling just emotionally, that Jesus, his peace, his calm, his goodness, his joy, it is life transformation, transformating. So imagine what would happen. Here's the whole town. They're like up in arms. They're like, we got to get rid of Paul because we're not making money. All the businesses that were there trying to really steal money and defraud people, they're losing money because people are trusting Jesus and living a life. What would that be like in the GTA? What would that be like if a church with a gospel-formed life and a God-given burden saw the city transformation? And that's one of the things that are on our hearts is that we wanna see uh, the city transform, particularly those with food insecurity. We've been uh, helping with Meals for Mind. We're developing this partnership with Scott Mission and 
in a few weeks, Beyond's going to be here. We're going to give you more specifics about that partnership. We're working on all the details, making sure that we've got everything uh, kind of that we need. Uh, but we're also partnering with some other churches. And uh, uh, a few years ago, there's a group of churches that got together and created what they would call the, the Restore Method of care. It's a way of really caring for people, vulnerable people in our city, uh, instead of people just going kind of from church to church trying to get a bit of help. It's the churches coming together and saying, hey, we want to be able to help people get back on their feet. And, and people who are falling through some of the uh, safety nets, we want to help them land on their feet. And so and we've got an information session coming up about how we can really care for some of the people in our city through the Restore Method of Care. But I want you to hear Pastor Sawyer talk about what the Restore Method of Care is like. As a church, I'm really proud to say that we're great at helping people if they're having a short-term crisis, if you're having a bad week, if you're having a bad month, if you're having a bad season, we as a church are really good at coming alongside people. But sometimes there's situations that look a bit more like this. Someone comes to the church, they're in a season of distress and we can give them a, a gift card for a grocery store. But what if that same person comes back three months later and they ask for another gift card and they come back three months later and ask for another one and they come back again and ask for another one. At a certain point, we're not empowering this person. We might actually just be enabling them. We're not helping them to get back on their feet. We're not helping them to get sustainable in a way that is actually long-term developing them in this way. This is the challenge. And so we're really excited to announce that as a church, we're partnering with Restore Ministries. They're actually based out of the Olive Branch in Markham. They were a church trying to solve this problem. What Restore Ministries does is they train churches on how to actually walk alongside people in need over a long-term period of time to help build their skills, to help get them uh, with a job and a resume that's in order. It depends on their needs, it's case by case. But when we launch the Scott Mission, we're gonna be having a lot of people coming in need. And many of these needs, we can meet immediately in the short term by giving them food. But how do we come alongside these people in the long term? And that's really the need that a restore method of care is best served for. So as a church, we have this opportunity. We're looking for care planners who are willing to come alongside and get trained in this restore method of care and who are willing to walk alongside someone in need who needs a mentor, who needs a friend, who needs a helping hand for a period of time that's usually between six months to two years. We're launching a vision day in March where you can come and learn more about what Restore is, how they're working in churches all over the GTA, and what are ways that we can bring our specific talents and gifts and temperaments to help walk alongside people in need as we work together so that everyone everywhere can know God's love and their created purpose. Well, I just want to ask you, as we conclude our service, what burden has God given you? Would you ask, would you ask for the tears of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus? Is there something in your life that you need to give up? As people gave up their books, is there something you need to give up to live a gospel-formed life? Is there something in your life that's, that, that doesn't match with the gospel? And would you pray for our city and pray that we would be a church that knows Jesus, lives the power of the gospel, and that we would see incredible, marvelous miracles 
that we would be in awe all the time at what God has done. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I just wanna thank you for the church. It's a place we come together, that we are the body, we're the bright, we're a community. And Lord, that we would not just be a community huddled together somewhere, but that we would be a community for our city, that we would be a community for those who are separated from you, lost from you. Uh, Lord, that people who come to Bayview would know that they're invited into this wonderful adventure of being the hands and feet of Jesus. And so God, I just pray that you would burden our heart, that we would find uh, the love and the peace of Christ and the power of Christ, that we would serve him faithfully and truly in the city and that we would be in awe with all the things that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.